840 here. I finally started a 401k about a, a year ago and it's just getting absolutely hammered. And I can blame this bloody bank, all right? This this uh, Silicon Valley bank. Tech bank bus regulator shut it down. There's a beer. VCs urge startups to withdraw funds from Silicon Valley Bank. There is a contagion alarm. Have we found our next Enron? So we've got fears of a broad financial contagion spread Friday after tech lender Silicon Valley Bank set off alarm bells over liquidity concerns. Right, sparking share losses across the whole banking sector worth some $52 billion. The FDIC shut the bank down to protect insured deposits. Apparently, the overwhelming majority, something like 97% of deposits in this bank are way above and beyond what uh, the FDIC will protect. But uh, this this just kind of reminds me of, of some of my, my favorite themes. And one is there's nothing that you do that doesn't also affect other people. So particularly if you're you know investing money, all right, and you make a bad investment, that's going to negatively affect other people in your life. But I have sponsees who talk to me, oh, you know, this is just something I'm just doing on my own. It doesn't affect anyone else, but it does affect uh, other people. If you you know, spend your spare time reading the Bible as opposed to spending your spare time playing video games, you're going to be a different person. If you, you know, pray regularly or if you masturbate regularly, you're going to be a different person. If it burns when you pee and you check it out, you're right, you go to a medical professional, get it all checked out, all right, that's going to have a different effect on people as opposed to if you just ignore it. If uh, you sp spend... Your, your spare time, like getting exercise, making healthy decisions, you know, getting rested, all right, you're going to be a very different person than if you're not making healthy decisions, all right? If you make unhealthy decisions, you're much more likely to be a burden on other people, you're much more likely to get into accidents. It just takes one bad driver on the road to really mess up a whole day for thousands upon thousands of other people. So we are all contagious. I'm contagious, you're contagious. We're all transmitting, right? I am transmitting right now across the awesome powers of uh, YouTube. And it's a thrill for me to, to be enjoying. No, I'm not transmitting across YouTube. <laughs> somehow, somehow, dog got it. I didn't make it to, uh, didn't make it to YouTube. That's a shame. It's uh, it's scheduled. Ah, there we go. Yes, I am transmitting. So I am enjoying the thrill of uh, one live viewer right now on YouTube. I I also have the the thrill of you know one live viewer on on Facebook, <laughs> but I'm transmitting to like five people right now. Uh, Rumble, we're going out live on Rumble. We're going out live on Twitter. Whoa, five five live viewers right now on on Twitter. I'm not going to let it go to my head, but we're all transmitting. All right. Whatever's going on with you is transmitting out to other people. Right. Even if you live alone, right. When you walk out onto the street, you, you go to work, you go to church, you go to synagogue. We're always transmitting. So are you transmitting contagion or are you transmitting God or goodness or respect for other people? I mean, what are you sending out into the world? And how you spend your time is going to shape what you transmit. 
right? You can't spend your spare time masturbating, watching pornography, gambling, all right, and then, you know, be transmitting a, a positive message or just a positive vibe to, to other people. So Silicon Valley Bank, all right, it's uh, thrown a whole wrench in in the stock market, all right? My 401k is way down. We had uh, Peter Thiel's company telling their clients to withdraw their deposits from this bank. Now we've got Bill Ackman saying the US government should step in and bail it out. And we've got Michael Burry, the eccentric investor featured in the 2015 film, The Big Short. He says it's possible today that we found our Enron. So we have an effect on other people, all right? We very rarely get to shape people by directly telling them what to do, whether they should, oh, you need to invest in this stock, you need to drink this tea, you need to take up this exercise, you need to go to my synagogue. All right, that doesn't work. But if we simply live our lives, we affect other people, right? Other people are going to be shaped by what's going on with us. And how we spend our spare time is going to transmit through to other people. Do we have confidence? So when I'm making the right decisions, when I get up early, I get my cold shower in, I do my exercises, I do my prayer, I do my meditation, I get on my 12-step meetings, I talk to my sponsees, I you know, get into my work at a good time, I'm you know, feeling sharp, I devote myself to, to my work, to you know, helping my clients, right? being fully present with them. All right, that's a respectable way to go through my day, and that transmits then to other people, and I have a positive effect on other people. I'm my self perception is that I'm a pretty happy guy about ninety five percent of the time, and I, I like to say really provocative things, but uh, I try to use good judgment with the, the people with whom I, I share my you know provocative jokes or provocative insights, so that I don't bring people down. Some people, if I shared you know my my tasteless jokes, it would bring them down. Other people, the very same jokes, it would bring them up. It would uplift them. So I remember I, I was going to this uh, voice coach and she encouraged me not to be obnoxious. Just try it for two weeks. Don't tease people and, and don't be obnoxious. And there was this uh, uh, secretary who I'd see regularly and she said, well, what's the matter with you? You've changed, right? You're, you're no fun anymore. I used to really enjoy all the you know, obnoxious, tasteless uh, things that you would you would say. And, you know, what the hell happened to you know, the Luke Ford that I knew and loved? So for her, me restricting myself from, you know, cutting sarcasm and, you know, witty, possibly tasteless remarks, right, that, that didn't bring joy to her. That didn't add to her life. But other people, they were improved. So, yeah, we're always transmitting. We're all contagious. And I kind of love... I love the, the Torah perspective on this, all right, that we are continually creating contagion, all of us, like even, even, even those of us on, you know, on, on a good path. And we have to have, you know, rituals and community rights and, you know, purification to, you know, flush away the impurity and the contagion that we can't help but transmit. So in a literal sense, that means, you know, going to the bathroom, getting a shower, uh, using deodorant. But we also, you know, transmit and unwittingly hurt other people all the time, right? And so if you believe that there's like a moral order to the universe, all right, then 
then when you tip into impurity and, and filth, all right, there, there has to be some, you know, ritual way of atoning. And so in 12 step, it's about making amends. Uh, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, all right, all have the, the different ways of, of making amends. Uh, the world of psychology and, and personal growth have their approaches, but we inevitably bruise as other people. And we, if we don't make amends for that, all right, we just, you know, go through life doing all sorts of unnecessary harm. So yeah, from a Torah perspective, there's one rule that rules, one law rules the universe. It is physical and moral. If we grossly violate the rules that rule the universe, all right, there will be repercussions in the physical world, in the spiritual world, in the psychological world, in the social world, and in the financial world. And if, you know, the filth builds up to a sufficient degree in our individual lives or in our communal lives, right, we drive out God or the source of healing or the source of redemption or the possibilities of transformation, you just drive that out of the, the universe. And so we've got a you know, major you know, financial issue with the Silicon Valley Bank, but uh, all of us are just you know, transmitting, transmitting constantly. You know, what the hell are we transmitting? Also, it makes me think how much we would be better served by doing away with civil rights legislation and returning to freedom of association. All right, so some banks would be better off, you know, just having principal employees with, with one coherent worldview. So saying that you can't discriminate in, in hiring, so you have to bring in people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds with different attitudes, say, towards financial risk, right? That, that doesn't enhance social cohesion and a sense of vision and mission and ease and comfort and effectiveness at work. So it used to be you had these things called white shoe law firms, and they did not employ Jews, and they did not employ other people. And as a result of those explicit acts of discrimination, they got to build up high levels of social coherence and social cohesion and build up more of a shared vision. And they didn't have to litigate all sorts of things that there was a common accepted way of doing things which kept, you know, a lot of these firms out of harm's way. When you have a more diverse firm or a more diverse community, right, a lot more things need to be negotiated and all sorts of moral standards that you and your community may take for granted, right, you, you may suddenly find that uh, other people who are now, you are now vulnerable to don't share the same moral standards. So it helps if you allow businesses and communities and, and families and churches and synagogues right, to build a freedom of association, create social cohesion and social trust by only allowing in people who share a particular vision, people who share a particular approach or people who come from a particular background. And you're going to have a, probably a lot less financial crime, a lot less social dislocation, a lot less contagion, all right, if people live within a community because when you live in community it's it's very hard to fool other people right if you've got some adventurous financial instrument that you think the bank should be investing in right it's a lot easier to convince yourself that hey the bank should you know be making these risky investments because it's going to pay off really big a lot easier to you know convince yourself about that than to convince a whole community or a board who's managing a bank. And so we're infinitely capable of fooling ourselves, right? Evolution has designed us to have an excessive 
confidence in our own ability to discern right and wrong and to discern reality. But evolution has also created us to be very, very good at figuring out when other people are trying to manipulate us. And our abilities to manipulate other people against their own best interests are quite limited. But if you're all on the same team, then all sorts of moral standards and rituals and outlooks on life and visions are just taken for granted that they're shared in common. And so I would think that you'd be you know, less susceptible to the, the fragmentation, the contagion, the, the lack of coherence that comes when you have to abide by all the, the civil rights legislation. So, I mean, do you really think that the Jewish state, for example, is better off, is stronger, is more socially cohesive, is more coherent, right? Because it has about 25% of the population who absolutely hate it and want it dead and destroyed, right? How exactly is that in the interests of, of Israel? to be blessed by the presence of, say, 25% of a population that wants the Zionist state completely destroyed, right? I, I don't see how that benefits Israel, but I don't see how that benefits a bank. I don't see how that benefits a you know, stock trading company. I don't see how that benefits a supermarket. So let's get back to this New Yorker article. First speaker of the evening, but for weeks the press had dangled the question of his appearance as if it were a cliffhanger on a reality show. Ben Gavir agreed to join the cast of Big Brother in 2019, but an early election derailed the plan. Ben Gavir has been Koch's most visible ambassador. On his first date with his future wife, they visited the grave of Baruch Goldstein, an extremist settler who, in 1994, had gunned down 29 Muslim worshippers at the Cave of the Patriarchs, a holy site for Muslims and Jews in Hebron. Until recently, a photograph of Goldstein hung on the Ben Gavir's living room wall at their home in the Kiryat Arba settlement in Hebron. Ben Gavir began attending the Kahani Memorial when he was a teenager and eventually became its host. He used to call up reporters, promising them provocations, such as a noose to threaten an Arab lawmaker, to entice them to cover the event. The movement was considered marginal. It was a joke how small it was, Kariv, the former Shin Bet official, said. It has since expanded. So coherent, cohesive, united around a common vision groups can be incredibly powerful. They can punch way above their weight. All right, if people are united, they believe strongly, they're willing to sacrifice for a cause. So he started up this very, very tiny movement, but it was relatively coherent, cohesive, composed of people willing to sacrifice for the cause. And they felt like they were, they were all brothers, that they were a band of brothers in it together. And now they wield tremendous power in Israel. To include a political party, Jewish power, a financial arm, the fund to save the people of Israel, and a militant anti-assimilation group, the Hava, or Flame. In the latest election, according to one estimate, a third of all Israeli soldiers voted for Ben Gavir. As Ben Gavir entered government, he insisted that he had become more moderate. So soldiers are usually going to be much more willing to sacrifice than your regular person. So if this, you know, right-wing extremist commands the support of about one-third of the 
armed forces, right, that's a very formidable backing, all right? Because these people punch above their weight. Assuring one audience that he no longer believed Arabs should be killed. Two of his mentors on the far right even broke with him over what they saw as unacceptable concessions. So when do in-groups want to kill out-groups, all right? It's, it's not just on a matter of like pure ideology or nasty words or feelings in their heart. It depends upon the situation, right? If the situation is extreme enough where there's only a zero-sum answer, right? Either we win and the other side loses or they win and we get wiped out. Right? In, in the, that kind of situation, in that kind of zero-sum situation, when you have intense group conflict in a narrow geographic area, right, that's when you get you know, a, lot of, a lot of death. Edomar may kill eight mosquitoes instead of the two that his predecessors killed, but that's still not draining the swamp. Baruch Marzal, who served as a spokesman for Koch, said, The rift, an insider told me, was real. Marzal is a dour figure, a first-generation Kahanist. Ben-Gavir is second-generation, tempering his bigotry with an internet-friendly sense of humor. Some of his activists wear notorious IBG shirts. In one of his TikTok videos, viewed 1.3 million times, he kicks a soccer ball that he suggests represents Arab politicians. I'm practicing kicking Ode, Tibi, and Abbas to Syria, he says. But the rift also helped Ben-Gavir electorally. He could now plausibly claim that he no longer represented the farthest extreme of the Israeli right. Ben-Gavir became a lawyer in his mid-30s and has often displayed a knack for staying just within the bounds of the law. In 2015... Okay, so you're going to be a lot more effective in life if you can stay within the bounds of the law. All right? If you can't stay within the bounds of the law... You probably lack self-discipline and the ability to discern reality. It's going to be really hard for you to make much progress in a first world country because first world countries, you know, run according to legal systems and have, you know, law enforcement mechanisms, which, you know, however imperfect, you're doomed to get into a lot of trouble if you fall out on the wrong side of the law. He chided his followers to stop shouting death to the Arabs. You should say death to the terrorists. That's legal with a stick. Yeah, it's, it's much wiser to say death for the terrorists than death to the Arabs. Like occasionally, very rarely, I'll encounter like an Israeli in, in L.A. who wants to yell, you know, death to the Arabs. But that's not a smart thing to, to say, all right? I don't want to be walking down the street with people yelling, you know, death to, to any group. So, yeah, unless it's going to be death of the terrorists, I think most people can feel you know, pretty comfortable with saying death of the terrorists. Raphael Morris, a hard-right activist who heads a movement called Returning to the Temple Mount, told me, I've learned from him how to challenge the system without crossing a red line. Kareev said that Ben-Gavir is an extremist but a pragmatic one. He knows how to walk between the raindrops. Before the elections in 2019, advisors hoping to cement what the press described as a newly statesmanlike image urged Ben-Gavir to remove Goldstein's photograph from... 
Okay, so what would I do if the Goyam Defense League confronted me? Well, they've they've uh, raided this show on several occasions, and I welcome them. I welcome the conversation. So I would uh, welcome the conversation. I'd say, hey, I'm interested in what you have to say. Tell me more. How did you learn about this? Who do you think are the, the most effective advocates for your for your point of view? You think our country is going in a good or a bad direction, right? So I would feel quite comfortable. I would enjoy, you know, being confronted by the Goyam Defense League. I would enjoy the conversation. So we have a little bit of a gang problem in this country. So we've got uh, Jesse Waters here on Fox News calling out our gang problem. And much of this is from our immigration debacle. Gang violence is a problem in cities across the country. The question is, how do you stop it? How about more policing, more patrols in bad neighborhoods, maybe tougher sentences? But city leaders in Syracuse, New York said, no, we have a better idea. Why don't we pay criminals not to commit crimes? That should do the trick, right? We'll give gangbangers cash and tell them to quit banging. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little skeptical. How would this even work? Well, the city wants to choose 50 people between the ages of 18 and 24 who they think are high risk. Maybe they're in a gang or hang out with some troublemakers. And they enroll these guys into a program where they're supposed to learn how to properly function in society. A program. Okay, so you say, well, what if you confronted the Goyam Defense League in real life? That's what I said. I would be happy to have a conversation with them. I've encountered the equivalent of the Goyam Defense League in real life, and my approach is, hey, I'm actually interested in what you have to say. Now, many of the people around me, they have no interest in what you have to say. They're afraid of you, but I'm not afraid of you because I don't believe that you're criminally violent. So, you know, should I be afraid that you're about to commit some, you know, violent crime here? No? Okay, then uh, I'm interested in what you have to say. So tell me more. Tell me more about uh, the USS Liberty. Uh, tell me more about this or that. So I would be, you know, very happy to carry on a conversation with the Goyam Defense League in real life, online, wherever. His wall. I told him that people are afraid to vote for him. Beverly Crombie, his campaign strategist at the time, told me. Ben Gavir refused. He was very scared of losing his base, Crombie said. After two failed attempts to win a seat in the Knesset, he finally relented. The picture came down. Symbolically, this was crucial, Crombie, who remains friendly with Ben Gavir, said. Within two years, according to one analysis, Ben Gavir's support among voters went from a 30th of Likud's to as much as a third. To secure a senior ministerial position, though, Ben Gavir had to distance himself from the ideology that had made his reputation without turning away its ardent believers. At the memorial, he worked the room, smiling. He has a round face, wire-rimmed glasses, and a large white kippah that often sits askew. As he took the stage, his smile faded and security guards closed around him. Okay, caller, you're on the air. How's it going? Hey, Luke. Why would uh, you want to talk to those guys down in Florida? I'm, I'm uh, quite, quite willing to have uh, conversations with people. But I don't get the impression that they're interested in a conversation. 
Um, yeah. I think they're just shock jocks and probably agent provocateurs. And there's probably at least a couple of FBI agents in there somewhere. Well, I, I would find it interesting talking to them, even if they're exactly that, if they're undercover FBI agents and uh, agent provocateurs. If I said, hey, I'm interested in what you have to say, tell me more. I'd be curious okay. about how the conversation would, would proceed. And what if, you know, the response would be, you know, STF, you, you nasty, you know, K word, you know, I don't know how you have a dialogue with people like that whose motives are not one of, uh, of uh, dialogue as opposed to showing off for, and I don't know who their audience is particularly um, this day and age. Um, well, it's interesting. I wonder... We are talking about the guys who are on the video down in Florida, right? Uh, yeah. You know, accosting the the shul, yeah. you know, on the, on, yeah. on the Sabbath. Yep. That's what, okay. I want to make sure I'm saying. Yep. I'm wondering what would happen if a group like that went down on the southern border, say down in Yuma, Arizona, Paso, and started doing that. I'm wondering if the outrage. I'm sure there would be outrage on the left, but I'm wondering, given now how the country is about the illegal alien problem, what the response would be, and just how many people from around would actually join in on their side. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Well, you know, here's the thing. People always talk about, you know, the, the Jews this, the Jews that, power, smart, all that. And interestingly, you'll probably find many Jews say, well, yeah, well, we are in charge of Hollywood, whatever, big deal. But that doesn't, you know, people have a hard time, particularly, you know, shall we say the uh, uh, high school and less educated in wrapping their minds around that as opposed to the situation at the border. So it's almost like, I don't, you know, if they want to target somebody, you know, that's, you know, causing problems for the country, I, I would think probably that would be uh, a, a more uh, viable target if they wanted to win, uh, you know, friends and influence others. Um, I don't know where the extra, uh, the, the threat is, you know, from the Jewish community that literally, you know, ice, you know, insulates itself. They create their own communities and kind of stick to their own, the exception of the, you know, the, you know, out marriage, which even then there's largely a conversion comes to that, but I, I, I'm just, I, I saw that video, Luke, and I actually thought it was the 90s, the nutty 90s, and I found out it was just recent, and I've been, uh, I've been out of it for a while, and I said, that can't be now, and sure enough, it was, that's nutty 90s stuff, um, and I counted, what, eight, nine of them in their Hawaiian shirts, so weren't these guys actually boogaloos that have rebranded themselves? I, I don't know anything anything about them in this particular group but i i have had these sort of circumstances so uh, on the sabbath i was walking down the street and there was this woman who appeared uh arab or middle eastern who was just screaming at jews uh that they participated in human trafficking and you know other oh. heinous things and the, the jews were just kind of frightened of this screaming you know angry woman and I went up to the woman and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm actually interested in what you have to say, you know, tell me more. And I ended up having a perfectly pleasant, it took about 30 seconds, 60 seconds for her to calm down. So she stopped screaming and she just engaged with me for an hour. 
you know, we, we just had a, a, a good conversation. And so she, she went from screaming mode to conversation mode. So sometimes people are in screaming mode. They can be brought out of it into a different mode. Well, I had a similar situation with a person of that same origin and background right there. And, you know, the CVS right next to the Chinese theater. Yeah, uh, there on the on the boulevard. I uh, stopped in there to actually I needed an Anison because I was just come out of the theater, taking my couple of my kids to the theater there. And I parked in the garage down there and a similar lady, same origins. I, I, she kept pointing at one of the tattoos that I've had for years. She was screaming. I mean, she's completely outrageous screaming. And she even had the, uh, shall we say, the regalia on her head. And she, you know, I said, what's going on? What, what the heck are you talking about? And she just was completely erratic. And my kids were getting freaked out. And from my response, I say, hurry up, kids, let's get the hell out of here before she blows herself up. So that's how I diffuse that situation and uh, went on about our business. But uh, my experiences with people, I see you had a good one, I guess. Maybe that was an outlier. But I just don't think that that group is interested in anything but showboating. And, you know, maybe three or four of them are genuine and the other ones, I, I, I don't know. This Remember Mr. Little a few years back when he was yeah, the hot Paul, take? Yeah, Paul and, Little, Paul Little, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't, Pat Little, Patrick Little, Pat, yeah. Pat Little. We don't, uh, we don't hear from him anymore. You know, they, these, these are like flashes in the pan because society kind of, you know, you can talk about cancel culture and all of that, Luke, but society tends to not, well, particularly American society, uh, Western society for some what doesn't get into that. It's 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 abrasive. Even the people that may have similar views or are like-minded, they don't like people out in public doing that any more than they like the people, you know, in an LA street trying to, you know, accost them or whatever. It, it seems to me that, you know, uh, maybe the nutty 90s are making uh, a return, but, you know, uh, I would like to have had an altercation, or not an altercation, a, uh, uh, shall we say, a uh, discussion with those idiots. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous given probably some of their idiosyncrasies, but uh, I was just curious as to why would you want to even uh, uh, well, talk well, to people, people are complicated. So there have been various times when the, the Goyim Defense League have descended on my show. So like 300 of them will suddenly pour into the chat and start oh. talking about USS Liberty, et cetera. And uh, I, I welcomed them, and I, I tried to be as fair as I could. I, you know, discussed the things that they were saying, uh, gave my my point of view, and uh, they many of them appreciated it. So, people are people are complicated. Uh, some people you can talk to, and, and some people you can't. And so it depends if I have the time and the patience. Uh, I, I frequently do like to talk to people so when i what is their grievance what is their grievance i i'm what i'm trying to understand is what is their grievance that cannot you know that the root cause and the ultimate you know party responsible are the white anglo-saxon protestants who were and may may still be the majority in the united states but what is their grievance that cannot be traced back to the to their own people who basically are going the way of south africa well, people want Willingly. to feel people want to feel important, and so they feel like they're standing up and doing something important. So you think I, I it's think... they want to feel important, or they want to be a victim? I, I've always considered those types to be the alternative, the the Black Lives Matter on that political poll or whatever. 
everybody is wanting to be a victim in some form. If you look at the roots, the root of their argument, Luke, it's always a, one of victim and nobody fall, nobody wants to hang around. With, I mean, if you see two guys fighting and one guy just pummels the other one and the other one gets him starts whining and crying about how he lost, nobody rallies to that guy. They all either stay away from the guy that just pummeled him or they immediately, you know, swear they've known the guy and were with him for, you know, all, all along. Nobody follows a, a loser or a victim. And I, I, I'm not understanding why the alternative political dynamic is following this, uh, this victim. Uh, it's not a way to rally anybody to oppose anything. Yeah, but people aren't, aren't always driven by pristine uh, political ideology. People just have these, these drives to take action, to, to speak out to fight back to stand mm -hmm. up and be a you know be a man or uh you know i i just gotta sit back and you know while the world goes to hell and so they have these incoherent impulses and they they act in an incoherent fashion but uh sometimes they can be talked to like there was this one guy who who set off bombs at a, a in the jewish community uh in in the midwest somewhere and he got arrested he got sent to prison and one of the people that he targeted, the, the cantor at a synagogue, I think, started visiting him regularly in prison. And he made you know, quite an impact on the guy's life. So you know, even people who are doing heinous crimes, sometimes they can be affected and shifted and, and moved in, in a more positive What's the, direction. Uh, did anybody ever come up with the story of the Asian guy that was shooting the people coming out of shul on the Sabbath? What was uh, his grievance? No, no, not, not yet. His grievance was that uh, Persian Jews were spreading COVID. That was one thing that I remember about his grievance, but there's probably a lot more. I just was curious because I, I first the headline I saw, and I was, uh, I was in the hospital that when that was all going on, I said, "Is uh, uh, how is this white supremacy? You know, it doesn't seem, you know, there seemed to be one, you know, of course I had it." That's my whole premise with hate crimes is, you know, they seem to be uh, heavily weighted on one dynamic when there are some horrendous hate crimes that have taken place uh, around the country, specifically in L.A. and specifically between Latinos and the black community, to me, that are just egregious. They're never charged with a hate crime. So but I this one, this clearly counts, meets the criteria. I'm wondering if they're going to file those charges, but I, I kind of lost track of it because it kind of happened and then it was gone and i know the uh, la jewish journal did a couple of editorials on it but most of that was philosophical didn't get to understand why was this guy just going around shooting people yeah well jews jews are you know a fairly public uh group and and so they're they're particularly orthodox jews they're they're easy to spot and and jews also do you know exercise disproportionate influence in, in a country so it, it's not insane to think that someone you know may become obsessed with them you know people don't tend to become obsessed with people who have no influence people tend to become obsessed with with people who are at least perceived to have great influence and particularly people who stand out and dress differently and and act differently and you know carry on some strange ways i think most people tend to feel negatively towards strangers and orthodox jews in particular are going to seem very strange to the majority of people 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not hard to identify who's who. Say you go down La Brea to Fairfax and around Cantor's Deli, per se, and it's, it's not hard to figure out where you're at. You don't have to go there. My, you know, my thing there is, is you know, the Jewish community seem to be rather insular for the most part. They tend to stick, you know, tend to mind their own business. And for the, for the, for the most part, you know, my only grievance has been, it seems to me is with, not with Israelis, but with uh, American Jews, particularly the activists, they tend to be fermenting a lot of the problems overseas safely from LA or Beverly Hills in New York. And they have one standard for Israel and another standard for the United States. Some of the stuff they advocate for in the United States, they don't seem to be advocating for, you know, in Tel Aviv or Haifa and a place like that. And I hear that from some of my Israeli friends. They say, how come they don't advocate for that stuff over here? But that's neither here nor there. Israel's got their own issues going on now. The, uh, you know, Bibi's uh, court, uh, shall we say, regulation attempt. Yeah, so we've got the most right-wing Israeli government in mm -hmm. Israel's history, apparently, and it wants to reduce the power of the court. But when it reduces the power of the court, it is increasing the power of the legislature. So even though this new government is being accused of being anti-democratic, in fact, it's even more pro-democratic because it's very much majoritarian. It's a government of the majority of the Israeli people by the majority of the Israeli people for the benefit of the majority of the people. But I, I hear in the, the news media that if you're a majoritarian, somehow that's a threat to democracy. You don't want the courts influenced by public opinion. That's why we have some very bad court decisions. Uh, you want your courts. Uh, that's why a lot of times I don't even favor minimum mandatory sentences for a lot of time. For a lot of time, I uh, remember going back years back when I first started coming on your show. I said the one thing that was very two things that were the most respectable elements of Israel was their judicial system, particularly their Supreme Court at the time. Keep in mind, this was the Israeli Supreme Court that freed John Demjanjuk, which was uh, which you know, spoke to me to their credit, um, as well as some other cases. And uh, I don't think uh, you know government by mob, given given the proclivities and the rapidly declining IQs, I'm not convinced that this business of, of the people, for the people, by the people uh, has much merit uh, anymore. You, you're, you're only going to have a, a, as good a democracy as, as educated and you know IQ level as your citizenry. And unfortunately, I think I saw some information not too long ago I think I posted it and tagged you on it. The average IQ of a, the United States has gone down seven to 10 points just during my lifetime from 1970 to the present. It's gone down seven to 10 points decreased. That's kind of interesting. Um, I don't think that bodes well for, uh, for quote, democracy, as uh, I believe as Madison or Jefferson said, it relies on a well-educated citizenry. So if you don't have the prerequisite, what what's good? We what, what's what's good about it? And certainly, you don't want legal systems. The, the 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 merit, or shall I say, the benchmark of a solid judicial system is: can the state, or the government, or the country lose in its own court system? Court systems where the state and the government don't lose tend to be pretty, you know, just basically be uh, or show courts. Right, but it's. 
I, I sympathize with what you're saying, but uh, also think about the situation in California where the majority of the population voted for Prop 187 mm-hmm. to, you know, bar many social services being poured mm-hmm. out on illegal immigrants. And the courts then overrode the will of the people and said that was you know, illegal and invalid and, and couldn't be enforced. So sometimes the courts are right, but sometimes the majority of the people are right. So it's not like, you know, one side the populace or the courts are usually right. It, it's very varied. Yeah, well, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. You're right. Sometimes there are bad court decisions. Now, let me, uh, I don't want to say push back, but present kind of a, uh, an evolution of that. Let's just say the court would have ruled that 187 was valid and it would have continued. It would have been gone by now years ago, given the demographic change and how easy it is now in California to put things on the ballot by the left, particularly those types of things. Um, so I, I, you know, sure, I don't like the court. Keep in mind, I'm also of the firm belief that, you know, the Constitution and the constitutional guarantees to American citizens don't apply to non-citizens. The courts don't agree with me. Not, you know, certainly a lot of legal scholars don't agree with me. There's some that do. They just won't admit it because they have this situation with the bar to worry about, which I don't anymore. But uh, I think by, you know, larger picture, I would rather still have an independent judiciary where if some government comes after me, I know I have a chance of winning as opposed to one that's stacked. This is why Biden and the Democrats court packing plans that they, you know, every once in a while they bring up or, or alternatively and very similarly getting rid of the electoral college. Uh, really bugs me uh, big time. You, uh, you know, you got to pick good judges and pick good judges. Had all Republican presidents, starting with Nixon or even after that, Ford. Keep in mind, Ford picked a horrible uh, Supreme Court justice in John Paul Stevens, who delivered the coup de gras and a lot of solid decisions. George H. W. Bush put David Souter on the court. So you know, a lot of the problems that you know people are upset about with court decisions. A lot of those stem from conservative or so-called GOP nominees or appointments, either at the lower court, court of appeals, or at the nine old swine of the Supreme Court. The current court, I think, is the best that we've had in ages. And I'm talking about when I say ages, going back to the Gilded Age. Yeah, so you you like uh, divided government. So you've got a legislative branch, you've got a executive branch you've got a judicial branch divide divide the power up and let them fight amongst themselves yeah well let me let me well yeah in theory that's how the founders wanted and also you're supposed to be able to make compromise and that's not happening uh, anymore because what you have happen is now it used to be for instance lbj never would have gotten all of his most of his landmark uh, legislation through that historians praise him for without the Senate Minority Leader Everett McKinley Dirksen trading appointments to the FTC and all of that uh, for, you know, voting for legislation from the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the immigrant heart seller was delivered by Republican votes. Uh, So, uh, you know, theoretically, it's supposed to work that way, but uh, it's healthy to at least have an independent judiciary Think about it. If we didn't have the Supreme Court that we have now, abortion would still be the law of the land. 
in my mind, we wouldn't have uh, uh, the Heller decision where it says, yes, you do have a fundamental right to have a firearm. The militia has nothing to do with it because ultimately we are the militia in time of an invasion, which hasn't happened since 1812 or most recently at the southern border. So we wouldn't have that decision or that independent court because the leftists were in charge of the House, the Senate, and the presidents. We would not have uh, the abortion overturned. And, you know, I'm hoping now I'm still on. I've got two of three in my lifetime that I want the Supreme Court to strike down. Last one, I want them to take down uh, gay marriage. And I'm just hoping the test case can make its way up there and uh, get rid of that one. And I'll be a happy camper. Send this all back to the states, because ultimately what you see happening with all of this gravitating back to the states, you now have states, for instance, Gavin Newsom saying he's going to cut off business with Walgreens because Walgreens isn't selling certain medications in red states that are conservative. You're seeing that rapid balkanization. I used to talk about balkanization in your shows years ago, and anybody that can't see it happening uh, are, are willfully blind or willfully ignorant. You see this now happening. So now you have states making war, or shall we say, engaging in trade wars on other states with California and Texas have been doing to each other uh, for years. California wasn't even going after Arizona for a while until Arizona just flipped and now it's top three statewide office holders are incredibly uh, retarded Democrats, one of which I know personally. I know the new Arizona attorney general. Uh, her and I were classmates, and I can tell you that's a doozy. Arizona better buckle up and keep their heads down because you know she said all the political lawsuits were over. Well, her first three since she's been in office have been targeting Trump voters who were the alternative electors. She's going after them. She's pulled out of uh, border uh, litigation. So anyway, but what we see is with all of this stuff going back to the states, you're going to see more balkanization and more of a split to the point where my hope is they'll just start ignoring the federal government. We'll have some sort of natural, uh, this, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about a national divorce. You wouldn't even need one if people just kind of move out. And uh, Silicon Valley Bank has uh, become oh, yeah. insolvent. It's a female-founded, female-run bank that was very woke, very down with the diversity, inclusion, equity agenda. A any thoughts on the failure of this bank? Well, beyond – sorry, I'm getting a flood alert. Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, uh, the thing about so – that thing is scary about that is it's the first real bank run that we've had since the Great Depression, the largest collapse since Washington Mutual. And, um, you know, there's a lot of this. There's some sleepers out there. I think we're going to see more of these collapsed banks like this beyond just this woke stuff. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, when the next shoe is going to drop. I remember back in uh, February last year, Biden said he was going to collapse the Russian economy. He was going to sanction their banks to closure. He was going to do this going to do this. I think this is all part of this, you know, artificial, this a huge part of the American economy is artificial. And now we're seeing these large banks uh, collapse. We're seeing bank runs. You've seen the uh, investors were thrown out of the Manhattan branch by the police. They showed up to get their money out. And uh, the branch people called the uh, New York PD, New York City PD, to kick them out of the bank. And one of them was the co-founder of Lyft. He showed up, said, hey, I want my $10 million out. And they said, no. <laughs> and of course, within an hour, the, uh, the bank was seized. And now it's in receivership. And these poor guys will be lucky if they get you know, 25 cents on the dollar.
I mean, their deposits, they'll get a hundred thousand or two. I can't remember if they changed it with the a hundred thousand or 250,000 deposits are guaranteed. You have 10 million in there and you get 250,000 uh, FDIC insurance. Um, I would be pretty pissed, Luke, or upset, shall I say. I don't want to mess up the terms of service. But uh, I think there's going to be <laughs> yeah. some other shoes dropping. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no way that it just ends with Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, uh, no, and people... keep in mind, I, I, I've said this on your show, and I think you've said it too. I'm actually a supporter of the banking. You have to have a healthy banking system. People, you want to buy a car, there's not a lot of people out there that can go out and pay cash for a car. You want to, you know, get, you know, finance your house, do all that. I mean, you have to have a healthy banking system. That's the other element that you really do not want the government, particularly a government that is uh, authoritarian, somewhat touching banks. And history shows that uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, they talked about when he ran Iraq for 20 some odd years, he never messed with the banking system. The Iraqi bankers that were in charge of Iraq Central Bank when he took over uh, were still there before he was toppled. He, he literally knew what not to mess with. Uh, you don't mess with the economics. You don't mess with the banking system. You look at who people leave in, in, in their positions when there's a, a, a fundamental change in government or governmental uh, style or say ideology. And if you kind of see the you know, carryovers, you, there's certain things you don't want to mess with uh, per se. And the banking system is one of them. The problem with ours has turned into a casino for the most part. And we, our bankers are stupid wager. I mean, look at the Sam Bankman Freed. You had everybody, all the so-called expert pundits, literally licking this kid's boots. And to me, this was the most obvious, obvious fraud from the very get-go. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know, now we have Silicon Valley Bank collapsing. Well, go back. There's a genesis of this. I wonder how closely related that bank was with Freed in any form. In any form, I say. Uh, it seems funny that they come from the same nest. But also, there's a few other banks in California, I think, that are and uh, on the East Coast, it's in, it's in trouble. Now, there, there used to be white shoe firms, for example, that wouldn't hire Jews on Wall Street and law firms yeah. and accounting firms and things like that. And I would think that more coherent, cohesive firms back when people were allowed freedom of association would be, say, less vulnerable. They, they would you know, be more cohesive because they'd share a similar outlook on, on life. I mean, there are some communities that are much more at ease with adventurous financial instruments, say, than other communities. So I, I wonder if our legally enforced diversity, you know, is playing a role in these uh, business crack-ups like Silicon Valley Bank. Well, I'd like to see where Silicon Valley, and we'll find out now because it's all going to be open and, you know, theoretically should have been open anyway. But I'm just kind of wondering. There was a the CEO. By the way, Luke, the CEO was a was a was a guy. And two weeks ago, he cashed out I think two million dollars of the stock. He said, no, he cashed out two thousand shares at two hundred and fifty eight dollars a share. And uh, I guess yesterday it dropped to thirty dollars a share, and then it was yanked uh, this morning when they had the first runs there in the Bay Area, and then out in the East Coast in Manhattan. It had dropped from. $260 a share to less than 30 and was falling uh, when they when they pulled it off the or actually when the market's closed it you know it'll be delisted now cuz it's gone but uh yeah, you know it's kind of funny that 2 weeks ago the CEO and the CFO were selling large swaths it was 2 million by the CEO a half a million by the CFO probably cuz the CEO had taken you know stock as probably part of his compensation and he liquidated it because he was working on a $2 billion 
bailout from another financial institution to cover $180 billion or something. It's incredible. It was a Ponzi scheme. It's almost like, oh, we've gone broke all of a sudden. Then they go find some, like the Lehman Brothers situation. And Lehman Brothers was just the insurer on financial institutions. Lehman Brothers was another one. You talked about the prior you know, white shoe firms. That was one of those at one time. But would would you agree with me that uh, all things being equal, a business that just hires the people it wants to hire, particularly if the, the, these people share you know a similar heritage and a similar outlook on life, much more likely to be a pleasant place to live and much more likely to be stable than you know these civil rights legally enforced uh, diversity regimes where you have to throw together all sorts of people who may not have very much in common. Well, I, I, I've said this before, not only that, it has to do with merit, too. I mean, when you start imposing a political agenda that is completely illogical uh, onto financial institutions, let's go back even further, there's financial collapse. Remember when Barney Frank and a couple other congressmen drafted a bill and said that banks had to loan to people uh, regardless of their, you know, whether they could pay those loans back? And now we actually have California considering legislation that uh, to rent to people, you can't ask them about their income. Hello, it's a recipe for a disaster, right? If I was a landlord, which I would never be in California, I would immediately start converting my properties into commercial properties immediately. But uh, anyway, uh, the answer is yes. But when you start having the government impose political ideological crap, whether it's from the right or the left, it's not healthy for a banking system because the banking system <laughs> it operates on a whole different dynamic. It has to do with risk. It has to do with equity. It has to do with, you know, mainly risk. And, you know, for the government, for instance, on the housing bubble to tell people, you're going to make loans of, a, you know, say an average at that time was 250 to 300,000 to someone making $25,000 a year, didn't take a rocket science to figure out they're going to default, period. Um, and now we, you know, I, I just wonder what exactly what was the operational practice that's a lot of that's very quick for a bank of that size and scope uh to collapse and i'm just wondering you know where what happened you know uh the bankman freed thing that was a preposterous fraud that everybody bought into the pundits because they would like to have lived that way uh you know some kid that was playing video games and you know having orgies in the bahamas thinking he was out of way of extradition and raking in the doughs and just moving, you know, from one pot to another until he ran out of cash. But uh, uh, I, I think that we have some rough waters ahead because for the last two years, the government, mainly the Congress, has been interfering with the banking system. And then they've had corporate houses like BlackRock doing their bidding and telling a lot of institutions, for instance, you can't invest in oil and gas industry despite the fact that was the growth industry for the last year and a half in terms of profits. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked about this for a lot, of a lot of years on your show that it's just a trend. It's a trend. It's a trend. Um, I, I don't think that the, the current form of the United States is a sustainable entity, um, given all of these dynamics. And I think we're going to see something fundamentally different in the next 20 years. And, uh, that sounds crazy, but I, I remember people, Luke, telling me in 1990 that the Soviet Union was going to be around forever. And I visited the Soviet Union in 1990. I said, I'm not so sure because even their people are telling me otherwise when I visited there. 
even in where I visited, I flew into Vladivostok and visited the Far East in Siberia before we went west. And uh, people, oh, it's going to be around forever. And the following December, it was dead and buried. And Peacefully, of, by the way. Peacefully. Speaking of the uh, Soviet Union, any thoughts on the ongoing conflict in Ukraine? Well, uh, you know, Joe Biden's budget was $6.2 trillion. The revenue of the United States, the FISA budget's only four point two. Do the math, it's about a $2.8 trillion deficit. How much have we been sending over to Ukraine? I mean, here we're trying to fund our operations, you know, say government operations in the United States, while at the same time we are responsible for the last number I heard was 65% of the overall total Ukrainian budget, military, civilian, otherwise. The pension money that's going to Ukraine, their version of Social Security is being funded by U.S. taxpayers, not sustainable. Uh, and in my mind, all of the weaponry that's been sent, all the money that's been sent, um, there's been no return because ultimately a war or any conflict is about staying power and resources and sooner or later and maybe when a bakhmut actually falls it's pretty clear it looks a lot like stalingrad it's about ready to become a kessel and be encircled they break the back and for some reason Zelensky's rushing his reserves into a kessel which doesn't make any sense but uh if uh the ukrainian army that gets stuck in bakhmut and gets crushed it's open field uh to, you know to the dnieper river uh, he'll have to negotiate then. And then what happens then? We have all that equipment. We left 10 billion uh, of equipment in Afghanistan. How much is of U.S. equipment is, uh, is in Ukraine that the Russians are going to get and, uh, uh, and reverse engineer and such? I think the last couple of days, uh, Putin started filing, firing, uh, deploying the uh, on the electrical grid and some of the other infrastructure. That is infrastructure and resources that the United States cannot import. We can send 100 tanks, which is a drop in the bucket. It's not going to work, particularly Ukrainians aren't trained on, on Western equipment. Big problems there. But uh, when you start taking out the power grid, when you start taking out the water systems, when you start taking out the infrastructure that the country relies on to be a country, and when the country is reliant on other countries for over 60%, of its funding, they're just, they don't exist anymore. Ukraine is a dead man walking and just refuse. It's like the boxer that is just getting pummeled and keeps getting up and then finally either gets knocked down in the last round or then finally just gets counted out or, or the fight gets stopped. Um, yeah, they performed admirably. They performed better than I thought they would, but at the same time, they've been getting lethal weapons and training from NATO since the coup in 2014 they had a 750,000 man uh, army that was being trained and, and, and provided modern weapons. Putin goes in there with 175,000 troops. Now he's mobilizing three to 500,000 and he's firing hypersonics, taking out their infrastructure. I mean, those are really like in a boxing term, those are gut punches. Gut punches are very, are a lot harder to recover from. And uh, I, it's just a matter, a matter of time. Time is not, even some of the neocons I've seen on, T, uh, on uh, CNN today were saying that this is not good. Uh, time is not on their side. Uh, the only thing that's keeping the Russians from you know, deploying uh, you know, the larger offensive is the weather has been just as weird there as it is here. So the roads are still muddy. And we know from you know, 1941, 
that mechanized armies in Eastern Europe don't work very well in mud. It has to firm up. So, you know, we'll see what later this month in early April brings, but I think I still am going to hold to my second prediction by June or the 1st of July, they will, there'll be a negotiated settlement. And is uh, Vladimir Putin a rational actor? Is he someone who can be negotiated with? Sure. He tried. I mean, here's the thing. He, he, and there's a 2007 speech he gave at the Munich Security Conference. I, I think people should go back and listen to it. Because in that speech, he drew the red line and said, look, after the fall of the Soviet Union during his first, at one point, Putin requested to join NATO. And Clinton rebuffed him. Probably the biggest mistake NATO has ever made, or the U.S. has made, because the U.S. runs NATO. But uh, but in 2007, he said, "Look," uh, and it's all outlined there. At that point, there should have been some very very uh, uh, sophisticated and serious negotiation between the United States and NATO uh, and Russia. The problem is there's been a band of neocon chicken hawks. Uh, in the establishment, both on the left and on the right. I never thought I'd see the day when the Democrats, the anti-war party against the Iraq war and, and Afghanistan has become just frothing at the mouth that they want to go fight. But they don't want to fight. They want somebody else to fight. Uh, but when you get bad actors like uh, Victoria Newland and others that are influencing it, um, influencing government, and you have a president that has probably stage one dementia, it's not very hard uh, to see why we're on the course that we're on. Putin at this point probably figures there's no one to negotiate with. Um, so why would he negotiate his idea? He's going to have to break the back of the Ukrainians to the point that Zelensky has to face the music from his own people or the sound of Russian tanks outside of, outside of Kiev. And just because they were the Russians withdrew from the first assault on Kiev, so what? Russia has a history. You know, history plays into everything. Every war they've ever been in, the first year to 18 months has not been very well. But once they do a general mobilization and and literally lionize support, you'll galvanize support at home and start rolling, you know, uh, and mobilizing three, four, five hundred thousand people, which is what they're doing now. Uh, they're pretty tough to beat, and history is littered with former empires or wannabe empires or countries. Uh, that uh, subsequently uh, were beaten, driven back, and then at some points, you know, were under the Soviet yoke for 40, 50 years. So I certainly would not be optimistic if I was in Kiev right now. Uh, there, uh, to me, Kiev's last chance was when they did this last offensive where they pushed back uh, uh, into Kharkiv and pushed the Russians across the river and took, retook half, half of Kherson. Um, that was them, what, you know, the old proverbial saying, they blew their load. That was it. They've not been able to do anything substantially yet. Since then, they now have police units that are from the western part of the country that are in this now rapidly encircled Kessel at Bakhmut. And why they would be fighting for Bakhmut, I have no idea. We keep hearing the pundits saying it's no strategic uh, uh, significance. Well, then why are you pushing all of your reserves in there? It's almost like Hitler's Battle of the Bulge. It was a stupid move to begin with, destined to failure. He has all of his you know, battle-hardened troops in this Kessel. If they get encircled and crushed, 
he has literally nothing between there and the Russian army and the Dnieper River. I predict that when Bakhmut falls, they will start blowing the, the bridges on the Dnieper River from North Ukraine on the Belarusian border all the way uh, to the south to Odessa. And that's gonna be the natural demarcation line because there'll be nothing. Uh, he's, he's literally for some, I don't know who advises Zelensky. I don't know if it's the American side because I hear American generals, Luke say, they can't understand why the uh, Zelensky has doubled down and put more of his, you know, battle-hardened troops uh, in, in, into a situation that's 75% encircled, and they only have one road supply line going into it, and it is, it's a, it's a, it's a shooting gallery, it's a peanut gallery to bring troops and trucks over that last remaining uh, supply line, that road, that last remaining road. So, it's kind of interesting to watch from a historical perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, it's all about resources and the resources that the Russians are destroying now, we can't replace, we can't send them over a power grid. We can't send them over, you know, uh, sanit you know, sanitation, you know, the water treatment plants. We can't do that. So at some point the, the degrading of the quality of life of Ukraine is going to weigh heavily, which has been used as a tactic in history. Remember Germans won on the Eastern front in 1918. They almost reached Paris in 1918. It was the British blockade and the, de and the destruction and the lack of resources that caused the Germans to have to seek an armistice uh, in 1918. And it was their undoing again, resources having to fight the Soviet Union and the United States with their tremendous resources. It's all about resources. Wars about resources. So pick, I always tell people, pick your uh, enemies uh, very carefully because if they have a lot more resources than you, you have an uphill battle unless you can knock them out early. And what what if we get increasingly entangled in Europe and then China takes Taiwan? What do you think uh, of that? You know, that's not a complicated question. If China were to uh, invade Taiwan, uh, the United States would scream. Uh, there would be a lot of hand wringing. But we would not respond to China as we have with Russia. We would not. First of all, China could blo China could blockade. I don't. People don't understand this. China has blockaded Taiwan before, for you know a week or so, and uh, uh, and it, it, Taiwan felt it. If Chi Taiwan was blockaded for a month, um, they'd be in serious serious problem. But if uh, the if China were to uh, blockade uh, Taiwan and then launch an amphibious uh, assault with paratroopers, the whole nine yards, which is what they'd have to do. And you have to think that China has the battle plans drawn up. Um, the United States would do nothing, nor could it do anything. China's a nuclear power. And uh, two, uh, you know, in terms of uh, United States used to have this war objective to be able to fight two fronts at the same time. Well, you know, we've sent a lot of stuff to Ukraine. We've not sent fighter aircraft to Ukraine. One, because the pilots can't fly F-16s. They've been always trained on MiGs. There's no parts, they have no parts to replace them. So we would literally be turning our F-16s over to the Russians, literally. And uh, there's nothing to say that the Ukrainians wouldn't sell it. They've already been selling HIMARS on the black market. They sold some of the some of the French equipment to the Russians. Uh, we're talking about the most corrupt country in the world, but getting back to China, the United States would not do anything, zero. 
We would scream, we would yell. The difference between China and Russia, Luke, is China is more integrated and has, uh, shall we say, leverage in the U.S. economy that Russia could never have. And uh, Trump versus DeSantis, who would you prefer as the Republican nominee in 2024? Trump. Why? I, I, let me and, and let me qualify that. Before before DeSantis was a governor, he was a congressman. He's been to D.C. before. His record wasn't great as a Republican congressman. He was far more establishment than anything. He became Trumpian to win a Republican primary and a general election. And uh, he still has problems in his own state. I mean, he hasn't cleaned out all the degeneracy in his own schools yet. And uh, I, I, I just think that uh, people get boondoggled and say, let's go with DeSantis. They, they're going to be in for a big surprise. They're going to get more McCain than they'll get Trump with DeSantis. And have you paid any attention to the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News? Uh, I think they win at the trial court level. Dominion wins and it gets overturned at the Supreme Court uh, on a whole lot of re on a whole lot of basis, a whole lot of reasons, which people are starting to talk about now. I don't know how Dominion, when they are essentially they're a quasi public persona, they they engage you know they engage in government contracting, kind of like Blackwater. Blackwater wanted to sue people for calling them murderers and all that, and their corporate counsel said, we really can't because, you know, we're contracting, we're literally, you know, contracting with the federal government to provide, we're, we literally, uh, we can't do it. We, you can't have it both ways. Now, I would be surprised if they, if, if uh, Dominion won, uh, lost at the lower, at the lower court, given the court that they're in, um, but uh, I think that this goes all the way to Supreme Court and it gets it gets thrown out. But what, what about, essentially what, what they're complaining about is if I went out on the street and said under under their standard, Luke, if you or I are talking in a coffee shop and said, well, we think that their voting machines are, you know, you know, could be rigged. They want to be able to sue somebody for that. Uh, and that's on par with saying, I think that politicians corrupt. And that standard, that, that's going to be really tough to get past it. They might not even get past the Court of Appeals on that one. But lower courts really are, are, are odd birds. But the, particularly the court that they're in um, tends to, uh, I think they have a, a shot given the philosophical bent of the judge. Right. But what it says about Fox News, how Fox is so afraid of its viewers that it's telling them that the election is fixed. When, when they know that's not true and how much people like Tucker Carlson hate Donald well, Trump. Why are we in, why are we, okay, I'm not a Fox News fan, Luke, by any means, particularly now, but MSNBC did the same thing in 2004 when they said Kerry got robbed in uh, Ohio and in 2000, for some of them will still say Al Gore should have been the legitimate president because the quote MSNBC, NBC, those liberal uh, were afraid of their viewers. Uh, Viewers drive advertising. You have no viewers, you have no market, you have no profit, you might as well close up shop. So the same standard that applies to Fox News in terms of we're afraid of our viewers, well, I'm actually, if they are afraid of their viewers, I'm not convinced that they actually are. But um, if they are, that's a good thing because everything that Fox no News did, which we've seen now, you know, from, you know, remember when Hillary Clinton said, and I didn't think it was a bad statement, you can have a public uh, opinion and a private opinion. 
uh, everybody has that Luke. You, me, everybody. We've now seen that played out in this Dominion lawsuit. The problem is these fools at Fox were stupid enough to text it around and leave a written trail, uh, which they should not have done. If you're going to go on, if you're going to go on TV and bloviate and say, I think the election was stolen, you should at least say it in your text messages as well, instead of saying that the president's a crook and a moron. Uh, but regardless, they're not guilty of anything that the other liberal networks aren't. I want, I mean, and I still see, I mean, think about it. Why does MSNBC keep an anti-Semitic bigot like Joy Reid on the air? Because they're afraid of a certain demographic of their viewing audience. Yeah. Okay, I got I to gotta run. It's almost time for the okay. Sabbath. Thanks. Good to talk to you, yes. Rodney. Take care, Luke. Talk to you Take soon. Take care. Talk to you soon, man. Take bye -bye. care. Bye-bye, everyone.